Welcome to Totally Lit, a monthly podcast celebrating all things words. If you love reading, writing or creating books and stories, this is the podcast for you. I'm your host, Kai. Thank you for listening. My guest this episode is the marvellous Edwina Shaw. I was lucky enough to meet Edwina at her Relax and Write retreat a few years ago. She has the most beautiful warmth about her. A light just absolutely emanates from her. Those of you who have met Edwina will understand what I mean. Edwina has been writing and publishing since 2002. She teaches creative writing at the University of Queensland and is also an experienced yoga teacher. Her novel Thrill Seekers was shortlisted for the New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards and her feature film screenplay is currently under development. She is the editor of Biocchia Blues, a collection of stories about life in Queensland under Biocchia Peterson and has been running writing workshops at schools, in the community and writers' festivals since 2005. She also works as an editor and mentor. She loves helping other women rediscover their creative spirits and get their stories out of their heads and onto the page. Here's my chat with Edwina. Hi, I'm here with Edwina Shaw, writer of the wonderful Biyaki Blues. Um, hi, Edwina, how are you? Hi, I'm very well. I'm actually the editor, contributing editor of Biyaki Blues. I've got 45 stories from other people, well, 44 from other people and one from me. Can you tell me how Biocchi Blues was born? Uh, so I grew up in Queensland in the Biocchi Peterson era. I was born in 1966 and he came to power in 68. And <laughs> so like many people of my generation, we grew up with him as the God King of Queensland. Uh, he was on the news every single night. We grew up with people being arrested and bashed by the police and, you know, poli- uh, um, Joe on the telly feeding the chooks and calling female reporters girly. And uh, I think that's what really made me first start to actively dislike him was being called girly. And then in the early 80s, as a young punk, I experienced his um, uh, arm of the police force in their most ugly sense. The the bad guys who are out there harassing people for looking different, for being different. Basically, in those days, all you had to do was be a student, have long hair, or hair too short, or your pants too tight, or certainly if your skin was the wrong colour, you were a target. So um, I grew up with that, and in the mid-80s, I was busted uh, after continual raids by the TI, Turinga CIB. And as a teacher, I've had to, every time I reapply for my teacher rego, I've had to fill out a stat deck. So this, uh, you know, very minor drug offence was, you know, it's, it's over 30 years old now. And I have had to write a stat deck every time I've reapplied for my Queensland teacher registration. And it just really, really bugged me that this Joe Bielke-Peterson was still having an influence in my life. And I felt that it was time that we heard from people on the street like me, how it impacted on on all of us. So Matt Condon had had done all his wonderful books based on Terry Lewis interviews, uh, the bag man and Joe's um, police minister, uh, police commissioner that he put in. Joe was actually police minister uh, before he, you know, put um, Terry in. So he knew how it was all working. He wasn't innocent as much as, you know, many people like to believe. So Matthew had done all of that, but I wanted stories from people on the ground. 
and I'd had this idea for Bioki Blues many, many years. I'd pitched it to a few bigger publishers. No one ever bit. Um, and I'd tried to sell my own story um, last days on the 15th floor, which is about Joe's last days in office when he locked himself in his office and refused to come out after his party had dumped him after the Four Corners report. And, and it's told by his Vietnamese cleaning lady. So I knew it was a good story. I really liked the story, but I... I couldn't find a home for it anywhere so I thought oh well if I write a collection called Bielke Blues I can put it in there and I knew a couple of other people friends of mine who would have stories and I'd met Matt Condon and he'd said he'd do, do a foreword so I put up an ad on Facebook and asked around and I was amazed and a bit horrified by the deluge of stories that came pouring in and people are still coming up to me at Bielke Blues events and telling me that they have a Bielke Blues story and I need to do a Bielke Blues too so I got a lot of stories that's why there are 45 we thought we might have 12 maybe 15 stories but there were so many good ones and illustrating so many different encounters and experiences that I felt that they all had a place um, yeah so we have wonderful stories from important indigenous activists like Sam Watson who we sadly lost only recently very recently and it's a great loss he was a very great man and we were so lucky to have him and Bob Wetherill uh, and Angelina Hurley, who's just gorgeous. And, of course, we've got Melissa Lukashenko, Miles Franklin winner, uh, has a story in there, and the wonderful Nick Earls. So, yes, it was wonderful. I got all of these big-name writers who were, were, you know, willing to contribute, and then just people on the street, people that I knew from my childhood, Sean Mee, the theatre director who was an actor back in those days and had his own experience with police bashing. Raymond Evans, an important social historian who I'd met because we were both in the Hidden Queensland version of Griffith Review and he came up to me afterwards because I'd read my busted story and he said, oh, I was busted too. And he was this, you know, sort of university professor guy and I, <laughs> who I never thought would have been busted. But, yeah, so uh, apart from being a social historian, he also encountered the long arm of, of Joe's displeasure and of course the book is dedicated to John Sinclair who was a very important environmental activist he saved his group saved Fraser Island from being sand mined uh, you know a lot of Queensland was just being sold off to cronies for tourist development or mines or whatever they wanted it to be but he put a stop to that in and his group uh, in Fraser but he was personally hounded and that was something that I learned I learned so much doing this book. But just how Joe used the public purse to finance his own personal vendettas through the courts. Mm. So he sued um, John Sinclair over and over again, took him through the courts, bankrupted him. Uh, he lost his job because he was a public servant, an educator. And just like that, at one point, Joe had sued every single member of the opposition. So that was in 1987, as he was going a bit bonkers and um, on his last legs. But that's where a lot of our money went, you know. It could have maybe gone into education or arts funding, perhaps. Uh, yeah, so I'm very proud of it, and we've got lots of great people in there. 
I was really amazed uh, when I'd come along to some of your launches at the amount of support that you had gotten. Um, and was it e- just as easy as putting a call out on Facebook to get that interest? Yeah, that's really... I mean, I, I, I targeted a few people, like the writers that I knew and people like Sean, Tim Grucci. I knew Dan O'Neill from uni. He was one of my teachers. I, I'd come across Raymond before. But, uh, yeah, uh, most of them came from my Facebook call-out. Like, usually you put something up on Facebook, no one shares it, or you might get two or three. No, I had hundreds of shares mm. of that call-out, and that's why it just reached a lot of people. We've got people from America who are in it. Uh, so, yeah, people all over the world mm. who, you know, escaped Queensland at that time. A lot of people ran away. Well, I was very shocked to hear the stories. Um, I'm a Gen Xer, so a little bit um, wasn't really part of the Joe era. Um, But to hear those stories and how difficult it was just to be a student in Brisbane at the time, um, yeah, I found that really shocking. I've been quite privileged, I think, with my background, but I'm probably not as edgy as (laughs) some of the people who've written for for your book. Well, I think to... Just University of Queensland in particular was a very political place at that time. Like Nick Earls, who's older than me, he wasn't politicised. He was nose to the grindstone, medical student. Um, So you could be at university and avoid it. But if you were at all stirred politically, if you were into social justice, it was impossible to avoid. And a whole lot of good came out of this because with such a strong opponent. Sam Watson makes the point. It's uh, in the basics physics equation, you know, an equal and opposite force. We came up against a very strong opposition which made us strong. It also brought together a lot of disparate groups, you know, women fighting for feminist rights and um, wharfies, hippies and punks gays and straight people, blacks and white people who usually hadn't mixed very much all came together because we had this common foe. Basically it was anybody who wasn't a a white Protestant um, conservative was on the wrong side of Joe. So it it galvanised us and brought us all together and it also created a great underground swelling of the arts because it was a bit like growing up in Footloose because dancing was almost banned. You know, there weren't many venues. Um, You couldn't get permits to run music venues. So if you had a band, you had to find a hall, make the posters, advertise with those posters or word of mouth because we didn't have the internet. 4ZZZ sprang from that era as well as a means of communication for the opposition, I suppose. It was the act of opposition in society. Um, so all of that good did come from there and a lot of great art. There's a reason why, you know, punk started in London, New York and Brisbane <laughs> um, because we had Joe. If we hadn't had Joe, we wouldn't. Look what happened in Adelaide. What's ever sprung from Adelaide? Don Dunstan, we all envied them. But no, we got the Saints. We got the go-betweens. <laughs> and we got, you know, wonderful writers too, like um, oh, Andrew McGahn. And of course, Nick and um, all the the and Melissa, all the great writers that have sprung from that era as well. Yeah. Um, and do you have a favourite story in the book? I've got a few favourites. I'm the mother, so I'm not supposed to. But 
I think one of the stories that's dearest to my heart is the story by R.J. Naidu. His family came from India to Queensland. No, not from India. They were an Indian family who fled South Africa trying to find a better life for their children. And they ended up in Queensland in Stanthorpe. And Ross was in his teens and went to enrol at Stanthorpe High. And the principal there mistook him as an Aboriginal person and basically told him that no one here of your type goes past year 10, go and get a job in the meatworks. So his parents were both you know, teachers and they wouldn't stand for that. And Ross also had great fortitude and he kept going back. But that principal hounded and persecuted him personally every single day. And I think we're putting his hands around his throat, telling him he was worthless, that he was stupid. but he made it through and I think that that resonates through the whole collection that personal persecution of Ross by that principle is what Joe tried to do to so many and did do to so many people and because Ross had never written a story before it was very very rough when it first came to me mm. and um, we, we worked on it for a few months with the help also of Warren Ward who's got another really funny story in the book yeah, we, we got it together and I think it's a really powerful story now. It still moves me. Um, so you've really um, prompted first-time writers to contribute yes. as well? Yes. Okay. I mean, I do a lot of work um, writing for tra- helping people overcome trauma through story with Forgotten Australians and other groups. I mean, really, my, I, I ran schools in Cambodia and mm. as soon as people had the words, we would write, they were writing their stories of survival. So it's been a big part of my life. And I think that, that that's really what a lot of people were doing. Uh, there was a lot of outpouring of these very difficult experiences that have in their formative times, because most people were, were young people when these things were happening, when they were in a march and got hit over the head or arrested or had their, you know, their, their best friend arrested or you know, were bashed or had their house raided over and over again. You know, having your house raided by those police was a terrifying experience and it was deeply unpleasant. And we're all very lucky that well, some people did go to jail, but Melissa's got a story of what Boggo Road was like at the time and it was the worst prison in, in Australia. So, yeah, that's where you ended up and you could for just a couple of joints. Yeah, that's how bad the laws were at that time as well. Because have, he found out an easy way to persecute mm. the people he didn't like. <laughs> yeah. So your workshops with Forgotten Australians, um, if people wouldn't wanted to participate or find out information about that, where could they yeah. find that? So Forgotten Australians uh, is the term used by people who were in institutions as children, who survived institutional abuse. So they were in orphanages um, or in uh, juvenile justice centres, so places like Nearcoll, Nudgee and um, Westbrook, the infamous Westbrook. Uh, so most of the people I teach now are in their 60s and 70s and I do that through Lotus Place, which is a MICA project. So we always are looking for volunteers. So if you go to the Lotus Place website, uh, we are looking for volunteers to come along and help scribe because many of these people, because they were so traumatised in their childhoods, don't have great literacy skills. So, But they are great storytellers. We just need people to help write them down. Uh, I've got a tour coming up with them 
throughout Queensland in the beginning of February. So North Queenslanders from Bundaberg, Mackay, Townsville, Rocky and Cairns. I am needing volunteers there too to come and help out and maybe even hopefully you'll get a chance to do some of your own writing as well. And some of the other um, places that we can find you in the year, your Relax and Write retreats. Can you tell us a bit about those, please? Yeah. So I've been running Relax and Write retreats for a few years now. I think I'm up to year three or four. Might be year four. Uh, So I started them with my best writing buddy, Helena Pasta, because we always... She moved to Armadale and I stayed in Brisbane and we wanted to meet up and swap manuscripts because writing is a very solitary life but when you've completed something you really need somebody else to look at it so we would meet up every year once or twice and swap our work and write and edit and swim and feast and we really enjoyed ourselves so we thought that that would be a good idea to share it with other women because especially uh, women with children who had primary care it was very very difficult to ever find enough time for yourself and feel that nurturing and um, I suppose people really wanted to provide that safe and nurturing space for for women to explore their creative writing Um, yeah because we're writers it was writing Uh, and I'm also a yoga teacher so I like to incorporate yoga gentle yoga in the morning and just um, a lot of relaxation and um, sort of meditations through the day to help unlock your creative spirit so I've got three coming up this year first one is at the end of March and that one is up at Kujarawan in high fields near Toowoomba surrounded by great big trees and lots of green and views out across the hills it's really lovely there and that's for beginners and memoir writers but you know just come along it it will help with fiction or autobiographical fiction as well personal essays stuff like that um but it's really good for those just starting off to find your feet Uh, this is really the one for people not quite sure where to start Uh, so that's yeah 27th to 29th and i do try and keep the retreats as affordable as possible it's in a little school camp type place but we've got the whole place so we can spread out and that's four hundred dollars for a whole weekend with four workshops two yoga classes all food all accommodation and 360 if you pay by end of january then in June, I'm on Magnetic Island, Yay. which is, yes, it's so beautiful up there. That's my posh one. We're at a retreat, uh, you know, a resort centre. Uh, so it's a bit more expensive and it's for sort of intermediate. I mean, if you're a beginner, you're welcome as well because it's just so beautiful up there. And I do recommend if you're coming from Brisbane or further afield that you stay a bit extra, bring a couple of mates and um, grab a house and stay because Magnetic Island is beautiful and a weekend is too short and we're busy we're doing a lot of writing workshops and and then the last one of the year is in December 11th to 13th and that's up at Springbrook at the Theosophical Society retreat which is yeah I just find it heavenly and very peaceful beautiful big trees everywhere very quiet and peaceful and there we each have our own little nun room so you get a bed and your desk and a really lovely little space just for you. And then there's a big yoga hall and a food hall and these beautiful grounds, including a walk to the top of a waterfall with beautiful views. Yes, that's 
I'm very excited about that new one. <laughs> and what date is that one? That's December. So it's end of the year, just before the Christmas <laughs> madness takes over. Come and have a break. And that one's for people. It's, it's really my um, revision and feedback retreat. So it's for people who have some body of work completed that they want to come and have a look at swapping with other writers, um, getting feedback from me also, and talking about the editing, self-editing process and how to then proceed in publishing something. I've had the pleasure of going to two of your retreats and they have been absolutely amazing and really a way to help you move forward with your work but also making wonderful connections with other authors. It was really a pleasure to go to them, um, which is why I'm asking for the dates. I'm like, oh, can I fit one in next year? <laughs> well, hopefully maybe the December one. Mm, maybe. The kids will be finished school, but... Mm find somebody to babysit <laughs> I, i'm pitching all of the writing events next year as honeymoon ideas to mike <laughs> well magnetic island yeah. you could have an early honeymoon <laughs> um now can you tell us a bit about your other bodies of work um thrill seekers can you tell me about that yeah, so that's my first novel it's just been uh, released as a new imprint by Raven Books UK and it's autobiographical fiction about my brother's battle with schizophrenia in 80s Brisbane so it's I, I still love it I'm still proud of it and it's it started life as a collection of linked short stories and now they're really melded very closely together but each little section can be read separately mm. still I think so that was my first one which I did as part of my masters at UQ and then after that, I've, I've, I have three other, maybe four, four other complete full-length works. One, I think, is not going to live. That's uh, the Into the Fire uh, was a novel set in far north Queensland. I think I'm going to transform it into a screenplay because I'm also writing screenplays now. Child of Fortune is about my experiences living and working in Cambodia, but it's again, it's fiction. So I'm contrasting the life of an Australian traveller trying to outrun her grief over the loss of her brother and uh, a Khmer woman who is the sole surviving member of her family after the Pol Pot revolution. So I, I really like it. I've got it out at the moment and Dear Madman as well is a memoir novel. It's really true crime literary fiction it's, but it's based on a true story, a tragedy that's haunted my family for generations. The murder of my nana's sister when she was only 10 on the family farm in the Lockyer Valley. So it's also out at the moment, cross fingers, say prayers. And then I've also got a full length guide to grief grief has been a shaping force in my life. I lost my brother when, from suicide when he was only 20. Um, my father died when we were all very young. He was only 42 and I lost my son as well. So grief has been a very great shaping force in my life and after the loss of my son when I was about 40 I sat down and wrote this book using all that I'd learnt by trying to come to terms with the other two traumatic deaths um, through my yoga practice. I have been practicing yoga on a daily basis for 27 years and also through writing because by writing Thrill Seekers I discovered how transformative 
fiction can be. It's not just writing out the hard things that happen to us in detail. That is healing. Yes, that's healing. But also finding a way to see that in another way to give those emotions to uh, a character, a fictional character, that's one way of doing it, but also changing the endings. There's great power in changing the endings. Mm. In real life, my brother killed himself, but in Thrill Seekers, he lives. So there are different ways that you can use the power of fiction to reimagine your life. So that, And when you are rewriting those stories and rewriting them, the memories mix and it's not always the downward spiral to the memories of trauma and chaos. You, you are sidetracked into the other strong pathways that you've made by rewriting them in fiction. So it's a way to make those memories less painful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you can create a work of great beauty, I hope, um, from great trauma. And I, th- I, I, I still think that I did that with Thrill Seekers. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm proud of it. Now, if somebody wanted to find your work, do you have a Facebook page or a website? Yes, yeah? all of the above. Yep. Uh, so, so if we Google Edwina Shaw, will that find yes. you? Yeah. And can Edwina all Shaw. of... Com. Uh, I don't think I've got... If you write to me on edwinashaw.com, I'll find a way. I'll, I'll try and put up a PayPal button for buying Thrill Seekers. Otherwise, it's available at Avid Reader. Uh, if you request it from bookshops, they should be able to get it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bianchi Blues is widely available mm-hmm. in bookshops across Australia. Mm-hmm. I think we're not in Darwin, but apart from that, we're around Australia in bookshops. And you can also buy direct from And Also Books. If you Google Bielke Blues uh, and Also Books, it will be on there. You can buy direct from the publisher. And Thrill Seekers... You can contact me. I've got boxes. Or come visit me. Come to one of the retreats. Come to one of my workshops around town and buy one straight from me. Fantastic. Now, I wanted to ask you a little bit about how you became an author. Can you tell us a bit about how that came about? Yes. Uh, So when I was young, when I was little, I either wanted to be a saint or a writer or a farmer. Uh, (laughs) And as I got older... (laughs) I realised being a saint didn't look that much fun. Uh, at, uh, and the blues wouldn't have come about if you'd been a saint. <laughs> no, when she was good, she was very, very good. When she was bad, she was horrid, as my mother would say. Um, so I went to uni, but wanting to be a writer, but there were no creative writing project uh, programs then. So I ended up doing literature, uh, a double major in English literature, and. That just meant tearing books apart. It actually stopped me writing and stopped me even reading for pleasure for a long time because all we did was pull things apart. I mean, I'm glad that I've read all of those things now. Uh, Maybe not all of that Matthew Arnold. (laughs) But anyway, and life was very busy and I had a lot of trauma and, and addiction problems going on. So it wasn't really until I was in Cambodia and pregnant with my daughter that the urge to writing really struck me hard. I'd always kept a journal. I still kept a journal all the way from 18 all the way through. I've got boxes and boxes of them. So that's when I started writing. A whole novel started coming to me. It was really the beginning of Child of Fortune, which is the Cambodian novel. And I started writing then. But then, of course, she was a very demanding child, let's just say. 
she screamed a lot. Um, so I didn't get much done. But then after my son was born, he was two or three, I picked up The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron and started doing the exercises in that and remembering my dream of writing and writing short pieces and I started submitting them and I started getting published. So that gave me encouragement to then apply for the master's degree at UQ. So I applied and with that wonderful naivety of the first year of writing, (laughs) you know, just thinking, oh, well, maybe I'll get in. But I'd been very lucky. It's that wonderful beginner's luck that you have. So, And I did get in. And it was with Amanda Lowry. She was fantastic. And she'd picked a wonderful group of women. And that's where I met Helena. And I had Veni Armano, beautiful Veni Armano, as my advisor. And came out of there a couple of years later with a, a network of writers and thrill seekers finished. And I think I'd also finished the first draft of Child of Fortune. But then, of course, it took a long, long time to get published. Thrill Seekers, I got a really good agent, Barbara Mobbs, who was the agent for Patrick White and Jack Johnson and Charmian Clift, picked up Thrill Seekers and was very enthusiastic about it. But after one rejection, she told me to put it under my bed. And there was no way I was going to do that because this book was for my brother. So... I kept looking and I, I'm a member of the Queensland Writer Centre. Everybody joined the Queensland Writer Centre. I've been a member since 2002. I saw an ad in their opportunities pages for an English company looking for YA about madness, suicide, drugs, <laughs> you know, um, alternate sexualities, all of those things. And I just thought, oh, tick, tick, tick. Tick, tick. I was ticking all the boxes. But the trouble was they wanted something only 35,000 words and I had 70,000. So in one week, I chopped it in half, conglomerated characters and sent it off and they loved it. I couldn't believe it, actually. (laughs) I really couldn't believe it. (laughs) He sent me back a nice email saying, you know, yes, we'd really like to publish it. And I wrote back saying, what? What do you mean? (laughs) Are you sure? (laughs) And he just sent a great big Y-E-S with exclamation bag. (laughs) Yes. So uh, that was wonderful to have that and their belief in me. I went and visited them in 2018 for the first time because they published my children's book as well. And they were so lovely. They're just a small publisher. They work out of this sort of big barn in, in a beautiful rural part of England. But, um, yeah, they've just reprinted Thrill Seekers as well. And I was lucky enough because I had to import it, distribute it, market it, everything myself, which I had hoped to avoid by getting a publisher. But, no, um, it was still very, very difficult to get it into any shops. Um, But I got it into a few and I entered it in competitions. I was lucky enough from my own lounge room to get it shortlisted for the New South Wales Premier's Prize alongside it was long, alongside Anna Funda, wow. Favel Parrot, Rowan Wilson, Amazing. Peggy Fruit. Yes, it was a great list, and I was on it, and I was very, very excited. And I got to go to a posh thing and pick a fancy dress and wear very uncomfortable underwear. And, uh, so yeah. persistence is the key. Is that what you're saying? Persistence is the key. Don't give up. Don't give up, because. If I'd given up on that story, there would be no Bjorki Blues. If I'd given up on Mrs Sunshine, it wouldn't have been in Best Australian Short Stories. I'm not giving up on my other manuscripts. I'm just waiting for the right publisher who has 
belief in the work itself can see the value yeah okay so now we're going to do some quick fire questions just so that um our audience can get a bit more of an idea of you personally i guess um can you tell me what your favorite book was growing up Finn Family Moomin Troll by Tuva Janssen. Oh, I haven't heard of that one. Oh, you have to <laughs> look them up. Finn Family Moomin Troll. They're filled. Oh, I do know what yes, they are. Yes, with Snufkin, with Snufkin and the little round Moomin Trolls and yes. Moomin Mama and Moomin Papa and the magic hat and, you know, the. What's the little girl's name? But anyway, they're full of magic and. A, a sweet melancholy. It's a really beautiful tone that she has in her work, and the her adult work also has that same sweet melancholy tone. Yeah. I also love Little House on the Prairie. Um, okay. If you could be any book character, who would it be? Oh, I think I'd have to be Scarlett O'Hara. Good choice. <laughs> I love her. She's very feisty, and I think that's a great book. Mm. She's. Yeah, Margaret Milt Mitchell was a very small, demure woman and she's written a really um, feisty, spirited heroine in good old Scarlet. Maybe not so mentally healthy, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but lots of fun and a great read it is too. Yeah. Okay, uh, what are you reading right now? I'm reading a book that's so good that I... I keep turning the pages but then purposely slowing myself down because I don't want it to end. It's Everything I Never Told You by Celeste Ng, NG. Uh, She also did Small Fires Everywhere, which Mm -hmm. is also, people have told me, very good. But I just picked it up off a bargain table, you know, a writer's Christmas. Um, (laughs) And I just love it. Mm. Uh, I mean, it is about my favourite things, siblings, grief and the and grief of, of of children as well but she's done each character so well and with such compassion that you feel for all of them it's a real book that you you feel and that I love that that's what I want from my books I want to be moved and I want to be compelled mm. and she's done both of that and the writing is beautiful I'm jealous it's just yeah I'm going to write her a fan letter, and I don't do that very often. Okay. If you could invite five literary people to dinner, who would they be? Dead or alive? Either. Well, I think I'd have to have Margaret Atwood, Mm -hmm. just because when I grow up, I want to have a list as impressive as hers. I'd love to have Gertrude Stein, Mm. because I just think she's a crazy old bat. I'd have to have Uncle Ernie, Ernie Mm. Hemingway. Um, (laughs) He's been a... He's been on my, you know, heavenly support team for quite some time, bossing everybody around. I know he was a misogynist and uh, it's just, uh, I think he, he had, or he recommended Edwina as a, a name for one of his grandchildren. And so I've got a soft oh, spot for him. Yes. I'd also love Truman, mm. Truman Capote and Tennessee. Mm. I've, I've got a soft spot for the uh, Southern queers. <laughs> <laughs> Willa Cather as well, of course. Okay, now what advice would you give yourself if you could go back to the beginning of your writing journey? Oh, I think it would be don't give up. I think, I think I've actually coped very well because I haven't given up. Maybe just, just keep going, just keep going, just keep going. Yeah. Keep submitting. I think that's the secret and uh, what a lot of people... 
because when you get the rejections, it hurts. And the more you submit, the more rejections you get. <laughs> they hurt so much. They do hurt. And I'm sorry to say that even after 17 years of rejections, oh, yeah. they still do hurt. But... The ones for smaller projects hurt less than the ones for big projects. So make sure you've got a lot of little ones out and then just wait for your time of luck. There's so much luck with all of these things. Every time, and and play with it more. I think that's what I'd say. Mm. Don't be so serious about it. Treat it as a joy. And it is a joy. We write because it's fun. Mm. And... To lose ourselves, especially when you're writing fiction, in that creative world and be surprised by what happens next, that's, that's a great joy. And you get so caught up in, in crafting a beautiful story, there's a great joy in that too, in the, the rewriting process. And then submitting is like entering a lottery with fewer entrants. <laughs> Unfortunately, we still have to pay more than a lottery ticket for a lot of these entries. So choose which ones you're going to do and... And if you've got a really good story that you really believe in, then yes, pay your $30 for the entry. Otherwise, do the small ones, mm. submit to journals and, and have a lot out. So you know the 10-point plan. Yes, I was so. going to mention that. I'll share that on the, our page um, yes. for There's our listeners. Told recently that it's really 20 points, but oh my God, oh, that's, that's The 10-point plan much. is great. The 10-point plan, so yes, having, having enough points out so that... You just raise your odds. Mm. I think it's just raising your odds in that lottery. It's like instead of having one lottery to get in, you've got ten. Mm. And then when one comes back, just send another one straight out. Yeah. And it also makes you keep generating work. Mm. So, And that's another thing, and that's still a lesson that I need because as I've gotten busier with editing and promoting and running retreats, etc., uh, and mentoring, finding time for your own work. Mm. I've just read um, Joanna Penn's Business for Authors, which is great, highly recommend, and she's just done a book on also the mindset for writers. And But part of the business for writers was her thing that she's got stuck above her desk, have you made art today? Which means, have you done something for yourself today, not mm. just for the marketing, the business side of writing? Yeah. I mean, we should all have marketing degrees. Mm. Maybe that's what I would say to new writers as well, or myself back then. So do a TAFE course or something in marketing and business. Yeah. Because as writers, we are small business people. Mm. Uh, we are sole traders, uh, but it's hard work. Mm and you've got to be prepared to work hard. And that's my motto. My, my resolution for this year is to take one day off a week. Right. Yeah. Be kind to yourself. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Edwina, for sharing your insights thank with you, me. Thank you, Kylie. It's been lovely to see you. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Isn't she amazing? I'll pop all Edwina's info up on the Totally Lit social so you can find more info on booking to one of her retreats, attending one of her writing workshops and or if you want to buy her book. I'm super lucky today to have so much talent packed into one episode. I met Frank Prem a few years ago at the Rainforest Writers Retreat. I had the pleasure of him reading his poetry aloud and his work has stayed with me ever since. Frank has been a storytelling poet for 40 years. When not writing or reading his poetry to an audience, he fills his time by working as a psychiatric nurse. He has been published in magazines, online zines and anthologies in Australia and in a number of other countries, and has both performed and recorded his work as spoken word. 
He and his wife live in the beautiful township of Beechworth in north-east Victoria. Frank has published two poetry collections, Small Town Kid and Devil in the Wind. Here's Frank reading his work, Devil in the Wind. This is a reading of a, a poem called Devil in the Wind, which is the prologue to my collection of poetry of the same name about the bushfires in Victoria in 2009, the Black Saturday bushfires. Uh, this poem is in several voices, a narrator and several other voices. Devil in the Wind Oh, my darling, the devil is in the wind, crying, roaring, swallowing sound with every tongue that licks to taste the grass and trees. Well, we could really only watch. It came down the hill on both sides and from behind us, four ways at once. It speaks to you. It speaks to you in tongues, my darling. The embers were like an oozy firing through every crack. Doors, windows, skylights in the ceiling. If you were putting them out at the top of the door, they swarmed in at the bottom. It was like a live thing. Darling, my darling, there is sorrow on this ground. The devil's kiss is a thirst that cannot be quenched. Look, I'm telling you, my truck didn't burn, it melted. It just bloody well melted. And the taste in your mouth is the ash and foul of a love affair to the death. I couldn't breathe. I just couldn't breathe. We both had damp cloths over our mouths, but I just couldn't breathe. Even now, I'm coughing up black. Oh, my darling, the world is different, so very different from when it first began. If we stayed in the house another 30 seconds, we were dead. If we got in the car to drive away, we were dead. We could only back the sedan onto blackened ground, sit in it and watch our home burn down. It took just a few seconds. Darling, this is the devil's stamping ground. My animals. I need to go back to save my animals. Are you going to stop me from going to them? They need me. Are you trying to make me lose everything? Let me go through. This is where he sings of desecration. It's turned into a moonscape in the space of three hours. It's going to take oh, probably a couple of generations for it to grow back. His sickling ground to corrupt with gouts of loathing. Somebody lit it on purpose. What do you do with someone like that? What on earth do you do? Come away with me, my darling. Come away. There is fire in the red sun's eye. I'm not sure if this place, our home for over 25 years, can ever feel the same for us. There is nothing left where the devil wind has blown.
My heart breaks to say it, but I think we've had enough of living in the wonderful Australian bush. Ah, oh, Frank, he's so talented. I can only dream of writing poetry as well as he can. I'll pop all his details up onto the socials for Totally Lit, so if you'd like to find out more about his work, you can follow those links. Keeping in theme with bushfires, I wanted to give a shout-out to all of our fellow Australians who've been doing it tough this year through the bushfire season. Our hearts are truly with you. Thank you to all those in emergency services and to all of those volunteers who have worked tirelessly to help fight the fires. Our very first guest, Michelle Worthington, who you would have heard in episode one, has been lucky enough to be selected to be part of a charity TV project called Adventure All Stars. As part of this, she will be attempting to raise $10,000 for her selected charity, New South Wales Rural Fire Service. I will pop the details up onto our sites, so if you'd like to make a donation to the hard-working fireys, you can. It's Inda time! Inda believes in a world of wonder. She lives in Brisbane where she illustrates and writes for children and adults. Her stories are inspired by natural and cultural gems curated from her travels and lovingly added to her Malaysian heritage. She is also a surgical doctor, swapping her writer's hat and paintbrush for scrubs and scalpel when Judy calls. Happy New Year, everyone, and congratulations. You've made it through the silly season. I really hope you've enjoyed the festivities and maybe even scored a few gifts. As we bask in our new toys and trinkets, it's a good time to reflect on our old possessions, the ones that are just a bit worn out, dusty, and shabby, which is why this month I'm reviewing NOP by the incredibly talented author and illustrator Caroline McGurl. Nop is not plush in places, the story begins. It's about an old, worn-out teddy who lives in the Dumporium, along with the other toys of yesteryear. He watches, bemused, as the toys around him decorate themselves by little lights in the night, hoping that their fancy trappings and modifications will find them a home as the shoppers come through the doors the following day. But nothing really suits Nop, though in the end he finds a red bow tie, a little accoutrement which ultimately spurs him on to adventure. Caroline's illustrations are sensational in their character and heft of movement, each gesture curious and endearing. They match the playful cadence of the words, of which she is an absolute wizard, with delightful descriptions and turns of phrases. She tells a simple story in a tantalizing way. You'll feel like you're singing when you read it aloud. I kind of like that poor bedraggled Nop isn't left waiting to be rescued, but instead rigs up a means for his own adventure. I love that the story isn't about acquiring newfound riches or turning into something more worthy, but about enjoying your own worth in the presence of those who would appreciate you. And I would like to imagine all my nops escape somewhere, sitting happily in their bow tie and tugging at their toes, just like Caroline's nop on the last page of the book. So I hope you all enjoy it as much as I did, and that your memories and treasures of old endure into the bright and shiny new year. Bye. Thank you, Inda. I love your reviews. Just as an exciting side note, David Litchfield mentioned us on his socials and liked your review of his picture book. Go Inda! Someone recently mentioned to me that I haven't told any of you all about myself. Sorry, I'm a little bit shy. So here I am. I am Kai Garvey, author of Empowering and Inclusive Stories for Children. I also write flash fiction and short stories. I've placed third in the 2017 Hunter Writers' Centre Grieve Project and placed first in the 2018 Carers Queensland Writing Awards. 
I work full-time and also care for my two beautiful sons who have ASD and ADHD in partnership with my wonderful fiancé, Mike. A big shout-out to Mike, who also does my editing and basically talks me off the ledge on a daily basis. I'm going to add a new segment into the podcast called What Kylie Did, and this will inform you of all my crazy writing activities and adventures that are happening in the background in my quest to get published. So that's everything I've got for you this episode. Thank you so much for listening, and don't forget to go out and read, write, create, ignite. Bye!